The next case was presented to Dr. Cliff Huddis and Dr. Dan Budman by Dr. Alan Friedman. My patient, 45-year-old premenopausal woman, when she noted a right breast mass in 2004, she did not do anything about it for several months, but finally presented about three months later with what clinically looked like inflammatory breast cancer. And she had a biopsy that showed infiltrating ductal carcinoma grade 3 with lymphovascular invasion and a triple negative profile. The biopsy was inadequate to assess the skin. She was staged with CT scan and bone scan, and the only findings were in the breast and in the right axilla. And on exam, her entire breast was involved. It was almost like the breast had been painted. And she had about a 5-centimeter ipsilateral lymph node. So at that point, we talked about neoadjuvant therapy, and I gave her the combination of adriamycin and docetaxel. And by the third cycle, her axillary node had resolved. By the fifth cycle, her breast mass was down to about 2 by 2 centimeters. The skin was markedly improved. But then right after that, it started growing again, and the lymph node became palpable. She underwent a salvage mastectomy, and the pathology was a 5-centimeter tumor, still grade 3. Two lymph nodes were positive. The phenotype was not repeated. She was then sent for radiotherapy. I'm not in the habit of getting routine radiographic studies and follow-up with my patients, but the surgeon really wanted to get chest x-rays every couple of months in her. And he did and found a nodule in her left lung. So she immediately came back to me and we got a CT scan and she had a left lower lobe nodule measuring 1.1 centimeters, a left hilar mass measuring 1.7 centimeters, and a right pleural nodule that was less than a centimeter. She then had a PET scan that showed increased tracer activity in both lungs in those sites in the left hilum, and in addition, that had not been appreciated on CT scan, in the right paratracheal area and the left supraclavicular node. Now, since she was a smoker, we thought that it would be worthwhile to re-biopsy her because of the possibility that, even though this was a high likelihood of breast cancer, that she might have a second primary non-small cell lung cancer. So she underwent a left supraclavicular lymph node biopsy, and this did indeed show metastatic breast cancer that was fish negative. ER negative also again? ER negative. What was her symptomatic state at that point? She was totally asymptomatic. So, Cliff, can you comment on the case to this point and what you'd be thinking about doing at this point? Well, this is a bad breast cancer. She's had five doses of AT, so I assume 60 and 60 of the two drugs. Correct. So she's had 300 per meter squared of doxorubicin. It's a triple negative breast cancer. And she's got biopsy-proven metastatic disease. It's asymptomatic, right? Correct. Right. So this is a case where I would give single-agent capecitabine. Mm -hmm. And I would do that because she is about to have symptomatic disease, probably. You've stumbled onto the disease a few months earlier than you needed to, but you're stuck with that probably the superclav would have popped up sooner than anything else. And you can make an argument for any other 
chemotherapy regimen or combination that you like, but there's no clear evidence that anything is going to be better or worse than capecitabine for her. What about bevacizumab? Well, this gets a little trickier. I would give bevacizumab in this case, actually, and thanks for reminding me, but many people will interpret the available data differently than I will. Many will say Bev plus capecitabine was a negative trial, although the response rate was higher. And they'll say weekly paclitaxel plus bevacizumab was a positive trial. And they'll also point out that in that trial, prior taxane exposure didn't predict lack of benefit, although I don't know that they had almost any patients with this kind of a short window and post-dosataxel. But I think that would be a reasonable thing to do. We're continuing to study bevacizumab and capecitabine with some novel schedules. And furthermore, I don't think that there's a chemotherapy-specific effect of bevacizumab. And I say this guardedly. A lot of people want to be very evidence-based, and I understand that. But bevacizumab seems to add to a menu of chemotherapy agents across a variety of epithelial malignancies. So while in breast cancer we have paclitaxel plus and capecitabine seemingly minus, we actually have five of few based regimens in other diseases where the drug seems to work. So I don't buy the argument that there's any magic with the paclitaxel versus CAPE for BEV. Also, we have the data with CAPE plus BEV in colon cancer. Exactly. That's my point. Right, not just fluoroperimidines. Right. Right. What schedule of CAPE, cytobine, BEV would you use? And can you talk a little bit about what's going on in Memorial in terms sure. of scheduling of CAPE, cytobine? So we actually are studying, and this is clinical trials, although we came to this in part because so many clinicians came to the same realization in the clinic that capecitabine really is not tolerable at full dose for 14 days, and everybody knows that on average, although there are occasional patients who tolerate it fine. So many clinicians give it for just a week before toxicity stops them. It turns out that if you model capecitabine cytotoxicity in an animal system using a cape-sensitive xenograft, the greatest proportionate cell kill for the drug is in the first few days of treatment. In fact, it peaks after a few days. It doesn't mean that the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th day doesn't offer cytotoxicity. It does, but the proportionate cytoreduction that late in the cycle is much less than earlier. Now, at the same time, the toxicity doesn't diminish. It's actually increasing. So if you think about this, what you end up doing by giving 14 days is going past the point of maximal benefit and delaying the initiation of the next cycle because you have to recover from toxicity. After modeling this in dozens of experiments with animals and different schedules of administration and those, we came to the conclusion that about eight days was probably ideal, but for practical purposes, we're giving seven. So a phase one study we've done, Tiffany Trainer was our PI, with flat dosing, has established an MTD of 4,000 milligrams a day, 2,000 BID flat dosing, seven days on, seven days off. And we're now taking that into two phase two studies, one with BEV, for her to normal, one with lapatinib for her to positive. And I want to point out to everybody that the lapatinib modeling we've done suggests very much the same thing, that continuous exposure may not be right for lapatinib, that intermittent dosing may be superior, and we're going to test that. Dan, you've done a lot of research in both of those areas. Any comments? We actually did a phase one where we looked at the combination of lunotecan with capecitabine, and because Capecitabine occasionally can cause elevations of bilirubin, which then influence as the same carrying mechanism as irinotecan. We did one week of capecitabine on, one week off, every two weeks giving irinotecan. And that was shown at ASCO a couple of years ago, and then we sent it to a journal called Cancer Investigation, which is 
folded, and I can't find out what happened to it. So it's going to be one of those irreproducible manuscripts that God knows what will happen to it. It's a very reasonable regimen to do every other week. In a lot of the patients, you find tolerability, at least not in the high doses. We didn't do a phase one. We just used standard doses, tolerated exceedingly well. So I think it's a reasonable regimen. The problem with bevacizumab is that there are at least 16 different angiogenic substances. And one argument why the original capecitabine study was negative is that when Kathy Miller did it, these were pretreated patients that were fairly heavily pretreated, and that you get redundancy with these tumors of various mechanisms. And therefore, if you're going to do it, you probably should use it early. I agree with Cliff. I think it's going to be a universal effect with this drug if used early, that it's going to enhance anti-cancer effect. But used late, it may have no effect at all. So if one wants to use it, you can use it early. I think this triple negatives are a disaster no matter how you treat them. And unfortunately, that's what you're seeing here. There is some evidence that the insulin-like growth factor receptor may be involved in some of these triple negatives so that we may see more targeted therapy in the next two or three years in this area. We surely need something because it's a disaster now. What would you have likely recommended to this woman who now has recurrence just a couple months after completing therapy with an anthracycline and desidoxin? I think it's dealer's choice, and I think capecitabine is reasonable because it's a quality of life at this point as anything else. And I think sort of back to the Gephardt Trio trial, which is really was a neoadjuvant trial of TAC. And when patients were given two cycles neoadjuvantly attack and they didn't respond, they went on to vinorelbine, capecitabine, or continue the attack. And the response rate in that group, it's sort of very similar here because this roared back so fast, was under 10%. So I don't think you're going to do well with this lady no matter what you do. Now, you said capecitabine. Would you also, as Cliff, add in bevacizumab? I think it's reasonable, but I'd rather see her on a trial at that point because there is contradictory evidence one of the ribbon trials actually has a capecitabine cohort. And I have to say that from an ethical point of view, if you were convinced that the CAPE trial was negative, then you would be wondering about the reasonableness of having it in the ribbon trial. So I don't think the answer's in. You know, I do want to point one other thing about the weekly, and that is in colon cancer. If I'm not mistaken, there's an oxaliplatin plus capecitabine randomized trial where 14-day dosing of CAPE was in one arm and 7-day on, 7-off dosing in the other, and that 7-on and off dosing was better, and it had a lower dose of the platinum also. So it's an interesting, it's from outside our field, at least from my field, so I don't think about it much, but I've seen the study when we've talked about this. So it may be that the weekly is really better. So can you follow up with what happened with the patient? I felt I really wanted to use bevacizumab in her, and then what do you pair it with? We thought about it carefully together, and finally we ended up using a combination of nab paclitaxel and bevacizumab. What went into that decision? Can you talk yeah. a little about that? Well, what went into it was we knew from E2100 that paclitaxel plus bevacizumab was superior to paclitaxel alone. And we knew from Gratishar's randomized trial that nab paclitaxel was maybe superior to the parent compound. So we sort of decided to combine this. George Sledge would agree with you. He disagrees with me every time we talk about cases like this. He really believes, and with evidence, that it's paclitaxel three weeks out of four that should be given with Bev. What about the NAB? There is data now from the last San Antonio meeting of ABI with Cape Cytobine with some high response rates, even in the salvage setting, albeit non-randomized. So it's as reasonable as any other particular choice. So what happened? So she actually did have a response. Her nodes disappeared. Her lung metastases regressed. 
and she really had no toxicity in terms of hypertension or proteinuria, but she began to experience significant fatigue. And she said that she was working, she had to keep her job, this would keep her insurance going, and her family depended on her paycheck. And after nine cycles, she said, I just don't want to continue with treatment anymore. I feel fine, and I just don't know what this is doing for me. What was her situation at that point in terms of the tumor? She was still in a good response. I would say it wasn't a complete response, but it was an excellent PR. Any neurologic problems? None whatsoever. She had no toxicity. None. So two months after she stopped, she presented with right hemiparesis and paraplegia, which is a very bad combination. And we looked at her brain and her spinal cord, and she had brain metastases and an intramedullary metastasis at T12. And we started immediately on high-dose steroids and radiotherapy to both sites. And at the time that you and I talked about this case, she had just expired. Any comments, Cliff? No, I mean, this is a bad disease, and we sort of saw something bad coming all along. Dan? I think she did better than I would have expected. She obviously had some taxane sensitivity, and yet even though she had six cycles of AT and it's fairly stiff treatment, you were able to get some mileage. But again, terrible disease. I'm curious, Alan, what your perception is in terms of NAB, in terms of the advantages, in terms of the infusion time and lack of pre-medications from a practical point of view. How much do you think that means to patients? I think it means a lot to the patient because of less chair time. It means a lot to the nurses for less chair time. There's less concern about hypersensitivity reactions, And my impression, although we haven't used it a great deal, is that it has been somewhat less toxic. If there is some mild neuropathy, it seems to be less long-lasting than the parent compound. Cliff, it's been said that the neuropathy, when it does occur, goes away quicker. How hard is that finding? What do we know about it? Pretty soft, and it's absolutely not accepted at the level of the regulatory agency. Anything else you want to say about this case? Well, one is the cost issue. Bevacizumab and nabpaclitaxel is a very expensive combination. I tried to talk with all of you about this issue, of trying to get a feel for how does cost and reimbursement tie in, particularly with these two agents in breast cancer. How does this influence your prescribing and community practice? Steve, can you comment a little bit on that? Well, I almost feel like it's an obligation to society not to quote, waste as many dollars on therapies that may have some marginal benefit, but ultimately, in a palliative sense, may not be as necessary. Obviously, if an adjuvant trial showed that the use of nabpaclitaxel clearly was better, and when we're talking about a survival benefit, I think it would be much easier to use that or accept that as a standard approach. In the setting of metastatic disease, our approach has been to use the drugs that we use single agent sequentially and in a situation like Alan's case where there may not be a better choice for palliation, even if there's not a hypersensitivity problem, then we would switch to a drug that has a higher ticket and potentially a better response. So if you have a patient who has complete reimbursement, for example, for these two agents, does it cause you some hesitation to use them because of the societal cost? Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm saying I wouldn't use that as the reason 
that wouldn't be my prescribing reason, knowing that they had reimbursement, nor would the increase in a progression-free interval automatically make me want to use that combination you know, as initial therapy for metastatic disease. Anybody else have any comments on that? Yeah, I'd like to see more of a cost analysis. I guess, you know, Cliff and Dan, what they do with their weekly taxanes. I mean, do you continue to every week give them Decadron the day before, the day of, the day after? Because that adds up Mm. to a lot of Decadron over time, and that could have its own complications. Well, that's the docetaxel plan. And for docetaxel in breast cancer, weekly therapy's never been better than the Q3 full dose. So actually, we don't use it. For paclitaxel, when we do it weekly, we start them with 10 milligrams as a pre-med the first time, and we actually reduce their dosing, so it's a single dose at the time of treatment, and it gets down to 6 and 4 milligrams sometimes, so that's not such a big issue for us. I will say from an academic point of view, and I may be going a little bit out on a limb here, and I'm not involved in it, but our pharmacy's issues are slightly different than what's been described here because for our pharmacy, the issue is that they lay out a lot of money essentially for drugs and then expect to get reimbursed, and they're not pre-clearing with the insurance companies. So the reason expensive drugs are frowned upon is that if they don't get reimbursed for an expensive drug, it's a bigger hit than if they don't get reimbursed for a cheap drug. It's not about the profit side. So that drives us almost universally towards less expensive agents. How much of an obligation do we have to explain what's going on to the patient about these things? Well, I'll tell you, increasingly we have to explain it because we can't give bevacizumab, for example, without pre-approval for the first time from the insurance company or another form of payment from the patient. And there are more drugs that are creeping into that category for us. And it relates to this issue of a nonprofit center can't afford to go bankrupt on the distribution of unreimbursed agents.